Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Baker's Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Our show. This show. Haven't we done this before? We have. Aren't people going to think this is a repeat? I guess. Well, because, <laughs> because we do our introduction in the... the, the in the same now, way, yeah. yeah. We kind of... How do we start? We've got nothing to talk about. We have plenty to talk about. We, we don't stop talking. You don't stop talking. I always stop talking. No, you don't. Uh, welcome to the show. This week's present. Yeah, yeah. I got presents. You got presents. I got presents. I'm still waiting for my present, guys. For <laughs> oh, <laughs> didums. The lovely Charlie Niemeyer. Yes. Who has just had a baby with his wife, Angie Niemeyer. Congratulations on the birth of your child. Sent me over 50 issues of the Fantastic Four that I didn't have and have never read and know nothing about. Now there's a baby in the house, all these comics are going. Yeah, pretty much. I had to get rid of his car. I can relate to that. I had to get rid of mine. So, issue 11 of Fantastic Four After Heroes Reborn, all the way through issue 59, plus a couple of annuals, plus a signed bookshelf edition from Chris Claremont for less than 40 quid. Because he just said, pay me postage. Fair enough. So, there's a big fat stack of fat stacks, yo. Yeah. Fat stacks of fantastic. There's a fat stack of Fantastic Four comics. I Try almost, saying I, that yes, times faster. I don't think that I could. So thank you very much, Charlie. I appreciated them. Angela, not so much. Because <laughs> I've said we'll have to get a new comic box. And what did you say, dearest? Were you going to put it? Yeah. <laughs> I may have to do some whittling over summer, I think. I may have to, to get rid. And I'll steal them and wonder where I can put them. Yeah, probably. Anyway, uh, we've got a special episode tonight. We're recording this on a weird night, so it feels a bit weird. We recorded it on a weird night last week. I know, but it didn't feel weird last week. This week feels weird. I completely forgot we were doing this, because it's not the day we normally do it. So it's very strange. Anyway, so we're going to get into some emails, as we normally do. And then we are going to do something very special. Yeah. They're all special, aren't they? First email tonight is from John Wilson. Hello, John. John does Avengers Inspirations, as he mentions in his PS, and the new 52 Adventures of Superman, which he in mentions his in his PPS, and the Golden Age Superman in his PPPS, and he mentions that that's a lot of P's in his PPPPS, and they are all podcasts. He really needs to and, go uh, for a P. You should, you should totally go and check them out, lovely listener. Especially the one that he does with his offspring, which seems to be something that's very popular nowadays. Yeah. I wonder who started that trend. Don't know. Who, who could possibly have... Because somebody must have started those dominoes falling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wasn't there? Somebody woke, woke up one morning and thought, I know what would be a good idea. I will do a podcast with my offspring about comics. That'd be great fun. I can't think of any... Nobody important. Oh, no. It wasn't anyone of, of any relevance. No, no, I can't no. imagine. No. Anyway... 
But all the cool kids do it now. <laughs> yeah. John's email... All the cool kids and us. Yes. <laughs> yes. John's email says, So much Superman, so little time. I'm listening to the last chapter of No More Heroes, where you run through the list of 75 Superman stories. This is, of course, after listening to every part of Happy Birthday Superman, and quite frankly, I'm a little bit depressed. Well, I'm glad that our Happy Birthday Superman series depressed you, John. That's exactly what we were going for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As of this writing, I am one story shy, continues John, of having read every Superman-related comic from 1938 to the end of 1960. That's a mammoth undertaking, isn't it? The last adventure comics issue from December of 1960 is sitting on my iPad, but it'll be done soon. So I've read a lot of the big guy's history, tons of stories, and since the stories were shorter and more numerous, it feels like even more than it probably really is. And I'm slowly moving forward through his history. But you got past where I've read in two episodes, and there were so many awesome-sounding stories in that list that I just haven't gotten to yet. There is so much Superman out there, and I want to read it all. It just takes a long time. 75 years, I would imagine. But you know what the way to do it is? Yes. You fly around the world so fast, you have to <laughs> go back in time and read the next lot. <laughs> and That's time over the management. same amount of time, yeah. yeah. That's excellent. Do you know what I do to cure depression, asks Joe? I read Superman comics, so I'm going to go and do that now. John M. Wilson. The endless well, circle of Superman depression. The endless circle of Superman depression, where you um, go back in time and read more Superman comics. John's email continues. You got around to reading Amazing Spider-Man 700 in one of the shows I listened to recently, and this morning I heard you and Michael go back and forth on whether or not Otto's rule could be called a new status quo or just a story. This is the debate that will not die, doesn't it? (laughs) Of course, as I'm writing, we've come full circle, and Peter will be returning to the suit in April, making room for a new villain-turned hero, Lex Luthor. That's a topic for another email. So now that we're here looking back, Andy and Michael, were there times that your conviction that this was just a story, Andy, or the new way things are, Michael, shifted? No. But you're just cynical like that. No, it's not cynicism. But you're never really invested in a story like this. That's complete bull. No, bollocks it's not the wizard yes it is because all the way through Superior Spider-Man you've been saying Peter Parker will be back that's been investing into the story yes it is because it's investing in the story You, the, the way serialised comics work is they're never going to actively change something like that so you know One you of the things ne- if, if you're believing that though then you shouldn't be reading comics that's a negative view okay. on moving on <laughs> if you're not even going to listen oh, go on go on alright so knowing that the inevitable outcome of Nightfall is that Bruce Wayne will be back did not spoil my enjoyment of Nightfall okay knowing that Peter Parker will ultimately return at the end of the superior arc whenever that may have been Mm -hmm. did not uh, spoil my enjoyment of that story I can still emotionally invest in the other things going on in that story the interesting stuff that's been going on with this is this Anna Marie character she's a fascinating character what's going to happen with her I'm not so big on her the merge Jonah Jameson bit with Spider-Man blackmailing him into saying he's the city's greatest hero. That's an interesting story. All the stuff with um, Carly and this Goblin Nation story, that's all interesting stuff. I'm liking the 2099 stuff. So you can be invested in the other parts of the story whilst knowing the ultimate outcome. But that's not being invested into the the stereotypical Spider-Man subplots, though. That's not really... But isn't that part of what made Spider-Man cool? You could argue, even as a five-year-old, I knew they were never going to kill Spider-Man when I was reading Spider-Man comics. But the soap opera aspect of Spider-Man 
was what you were emotionally invested in. But stories have that bigger impact if you're in it believing everything that happens, though. Not necessarily. Well, uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. Well, how about this, then? If something gets ruined to you by a solicitation which is the general... This is why I don't read solicitations, but go on. Then that will... You can still enjoy that issue, but you'll know what happens. But if you don't know what will happen, then that will make it better. No, but there's the difference. You don't know exactly how Superior Spider-Man's going to end. But you know how it will. recording. No, we know Peter Parker will be back at some point, but we've always known that. But I didn't want to. That's, um, I, did you... Laura, let's answer John's question. In your heart of hearts, okay. brutal honesty, hand on the Bible, that, right. all of that stuff, right? Okay. Look me in the eye and say you honestly did not think Peter would be back at some point. Okay, I did. See? But I didn't want to. See, but that's... that's so you knew it was going to happen, so did that I did, destroy the story? I didn't want to know if if it would, mm-hmm. when it would, or how it would. Right, so let's flip that on its head. Are you currently reading Daredevil? No. Oh, well, I can't talk about that. I I, I will read it all at some all right. point. It's not spoiling it to say Foggy Nelson gets cancer. Well, I knew that anyway. Right? So this storyline has currently been going on. It's now ended. Yeah. Issue 36 ended the story magnificently. Well, Foggy dead. Well, that's the point. Do you think they will kill Foggy Nelson? Yes. See? There's a very real possibility, though, that they will kill Foggy Nelson. Now, there's a little bit of my little voice in the back of my head yeah. that's saying that's not going to happen. Do you know why? Why? Daredevil TV show's coming up. So, there is that cross-market multimedia synergy that they're yeah. very big on that says they won't kill Foggy because Foggy will be in the TV show. Mm. And they're going to want that comic to be as similar to the TV show as possible. Which is what we've seen in Green Arrow. Exactly. But Mark Wade is making you think they'll kill Foggy Nelson. Is that, is that not good writing then? Well, that's... Yeah. Am I emotionally invested in the fate of Foggy Nelson? Yeah. Am I fully 100% committed to the idea they will kill Foggy Nelson? No. There you go. But I'm still enjoying the story. I'm not saying they won't kill him, they may. But is that not the writer, though? If it was a completely different writer writing the same story. But no, how. Well, it wouldn't be the same story. I'm not going to say that it's not Mark Wade that's not making that book brilliant. Yeah. Because it probably is. But Indestructible Hulk isn't as brilliant. Mm. And that's mainly, I think, because of the artistic direction. Yeah. Daredevil has a, had a consistent artistic vision for its entire 36 issues. Despite the different artists. Yeah, despite the different artists. It's been Paolo Riviera, hasn't it? Chris yeah. Samney. Who else has done some? Um, Marcus Martin. Yeah. But if you look at those three people, they have a, they have, a similar yeah. style. So the visual identity of Daredevil has remained the same throughout these 36 issues, and the writer has remained the same throughout those 36 the issues. Of Hulk. They've had different artists for different story arcs. Lionel Francis yeah, to Walt Simons. Yeah. And then I think that's her tip. Mm. I think that's hurt the strip. I'm looking forward to the relaunch where Bagley's coming on board because with a bit of luck, Bagley will stay on for years. Yeah. Because Bagley does. But I'm emotionally invested in the Daredevil story. Mm. There's, a, there's a part of me that doesn't think they're going to kill Foggy, but it's a riveting storyline. Yeah. But then that's that's incorporating a TV show into it as well. With yeah, Spider-Man. That's, that's what you're saying, though, Are isn't it? Are you saying it? that... Well, could you argue that's with Spider-Man? It's because of the new film, though. Oh, come on. We Everybody with an ounce of a brain knew that when Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out, Peter Parker would be back in the costume. I don't like that, though. I don't like other media affecting comics. I think they should all stay separate, regardless of what characters they're using. 
there is a case to be made for that, but comic sales are such at the minute that any little... Look, how much money did the Avengers make? One billion worldwide. Yeah. How many of those people do you think have ever read an Avengers comic book? Yeah. If an Avengers comic book was similar to the film, do you think the Avengers comic book would sell more? How many of those people do you think maybe tried an issue of the Avengers? Maybe one of the current creative teams. Was it Bendis at that time? Probably. Read one issue of that and thought, this isn't the film. Yeah. And put it back on the shelf. Mm. Whereas if they can go and pick up Daredevil and Matt Murdock's a lawyer at Nelson and Murdock with Foggy Nelson, that's pretty much all you need with Daredevil. Mm. The status quo, to use a much overused (laughs) phrase, with Daredevil is that he's a lawyer, he's partnered with Foggy Nelson, at night he's Daredevil. Mm. Now they can mix, sorry, mix and match Matt Murdock's life, screw it up, blow it up, do whatever the hell they want. As long as, that's as, long as that constant stays the same, you can do what you want with Daredevil. Which is why I think he's one of the most interesting characters in comics. Yeah. Because you can do anything within that framework. Yeah. Same with the Fantastic Four. You bring them back to it's the four of them against the world, and you can do anything within that framework. Yeah. And I think whenever those titles have stumbled, it's people who've gone away from that. And to make it work again, they've always just brought it back. You don't mess with the classics. Mm. So anyway, to answer John's question, no. I never wavered in my conviction this was just a story. But I never thought that when I was reading Death and Return of Superman. Didn't mean I didn't enjoy it. I never thought that when I read Nightfall. Didn't mean I didn't enjoy it. Doesn't mean I'm not loving Clone Saga now. Even though 20 20 years after the fact, I know how that turns out. Yeah, because I'm still in the early days. Right, okay. I'm still in... I've just read Web of Death. You're yet to reach the depression stage. So I'm still in the early days of it where they were still going ahead with what they planned to do. Yeah. As opposed to editorial saying, this is working, make more of it. (laughs) And them going, but the story's supposed to end. And them going, no. So I'm still in the early days of it, so it's it's still fun. Doesn't mean I'm not enjoying it. At the moment. Yeah. Anyway, John's email continued. I remember how Michael took major issue with how New 52 continuity relates what has gone before and how the five-year timeline doesn't work. I would love to have a little friendly debate on this because I consider myself a bit of a New 52 apologist. Don't know how that would work over emails and me a year behind on the show, but still, I think we've made our piece with it at that point, haven't we? We made a couple of digs during Death of the Family. Mm. But ultimately... Ultimately, the bottom line is this is the way the game is now played. New 52 is here. Yeah. And you either subscribe to it and read the books, or you don't and don't. I've gone for the latter. I've just figured some books are better without the baggage that they put on themselves and others are. Yeah, I've said I still maintain if he was going to do a Ground Zero reboot, he should have done a Ground Zero reboot, and everything should have started from year dot. See, a lot of... Well, Do you not think the five-year timeline hinders more than it helps? It does, which is why Scott Snyder's entire run is him trying to fix that. All the zero year is just him... Trying to make this five-year timeline editorial directed six work. six years now, just so that they... So it could fit. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if they hadn't said any... If Didio really wanted to be creative with his people, he'd have just said, right, it's year dot, do what you want. Yeah. You don't want to make Jason Todd a Robin. You don't want to make Tom Drake a Robin. Don't do it. But he's so obsessed with making it appeal to a younger audience. But at the same time, he doesn't want to alienate the people who love Tim Drake and Jason Todd. Yeah. And you can't do that. I would have been much more welcoming of the New 52 if he would have said, right, I'm blowing up the universe, we're starting from zero. And I would have been more welcoming as a younger reader if he'd left it alone. See, so, you know, can't win, can you? 
I do feel a bit sorry for him sometimes. <laughs> Gentlemen, you put out a fine show. Thank you, John. As you've been told many times before, never enough, quite <laughs> frankly. And I always enjoy listening. I'm just diving into the Happy Birthday Superman episode, so I'm greatly looking forward to what is to come. Oh, but the other email... He'd re- so this must have gotten to us in the wrong order. Yeah. He'd just finished Happy Birthday Superman. Before I go, can I self-advertise? No. <laughs> Moving on. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, Andy's been on my Golden Age Superman show, and that was lovely. Yeah, it was fun, that. The show is at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Avengers Inspirations, my daughter and I talked through early Avengers-related issues, and we were part of the inspiration. Only part. <laughs> oh, Very small part. Uh, yeah, and the complete Marvel reading order website put it under the podcast tab, and the new 52 Events of Superman has been revived at new52superman.libson.com. Thank you for your program. Thanks for letting us have our own country. I still think that was a horrible mistake on your part. Thanks for the random you showing up in your spellings. It's our language, dude. And thank you for putting up with all our funny American accents. Well, when I read an email, it's in my accent. Yeah. <laughs> People should start emailing in in the accents. Yeah, how would that work? I don't know how that would work, to be honest with you. Dave Walker's emailed in. Hello, Dave. Not heard from Dave for a while. Dreadful birthday part one. Figured since I'd not written in for a while, I may as well. Since an email wrote in about the Flash and Kid Flash origin in that episode, I thought I'd chime in and comment on that. Firstly, while they say lightning never strikes in the same place twice, that's not true. Lightning does have a memory, although we'll be talking about that in a minute. Also, this doesn't really matter since Barry got hit by lightning at work, and Wally got hit at Barry's home lab. Secondly, it was brought up that it's odd that Barry organised his shelves in the same way where Wally gets his powers. If you're a scientist and wanted to know where to find a specific chemical, wouldn't you keep it in the same place? Thirdly, while there is an origin story where, as he died on the crisis on Infinite Earths, he became the lightning that struck himself. Luckily, this is pretty much ignored by everyone. <laughs> it does sound pretty lame. I kind of like that idea. Do you? Yeah. You're one of those people who likes everything to be connected, though, are you? Yeah. The fundamental interconnectedness of all things. Well, I like it being random, but I kind of like the idea that maybe he did do it to himself. Yeah. Why not? If you could go back in time, why not mess with yourself? Why not give yourself superpowers? Who else is going to be that interested in you? That's a good point. Anyway, since the episode was about the Joker, I should probably mention him. <laughs> All right, Dave. You mentioned that the Batman animated series didn't feel the need to give him an origin. I feel it's a disservice to one of the best Batman movies, Mask of the Phantasm. I would argue that's not really about Joker's origin. Yeah. He's in there before he's the Joker, but it's not an origin of the Joker tale. Dio's I would argue. More of a Bruce Wayne movie? Yeah, I think so. Also, in the new Batman Adventure series that followed afterwards, they restate the origin in Beware the Creeper. I don't know if I've ever watched that episode, even though I've got them all on DVD. I think I've seen it. I don't remember. Well, I must have seen it then. Yeah. I don't remember that one at all. I don't remember the Joker being in it. Oh, right, okay. Well, he doesn't have a name. The Joker was a hitman for the Valastura mob, who on his first crime after breaking out of his own encountered the Batman at Ace Chemicals, where he falls into the vat of chemicals that turn him into a loathsome, underhanded monster we come to love. Another point you brought out was the lack of a good rich person in Gotham. Well, one, Jack Drake was a decent enough fellow. And two, the good people don't really have anything to fear from the Batman, so they will no interest to him preventing the stories from going from there. Granted, I've not read enough Bat, bat titles to know that this is definitely true, but I thought I should mention it. No, I think our thing with that was that every single time another rich person is germane to the story, yeah. they turn out to be criminals. I'm not saying there aren't decent rich people in Gotham that aren't but Bruce Wayne. Pop up in the stories. But you get to the point where every other rich person that Bruce Wayne encounters is a scumbag. Yeah. It starts to make you think there is a trend here. It may be nice to actually have Bruce associate with other rich people in Gotham who are nice. Mm. 
it, you know, it must happen, <laughs> but we never actually see it happening, I think was more of our point. Thank you for the many great episodes since our last email, and I look forward to the next part of your Joker celebrations. You're very welcome. P.S. Have you been in watching Castle? I've been enjoying Arrow more. It's a great show, and I recommend watching it if you're not already. I like Arrow! I still prefer Castle, but I think my thing with Arrow is, I think I've said this before, I don't give a toss about the stuff on the island, the flashbacks. Yeah. I don't care. All the modern day stuff's really good, and they do thematically try and link them, and that's fine, but I don't give a toss. Yeah. To me, the island is, to Oliver Queen, what Bruce's parents are to Bruce Wayne, and what Krypton is to Superman. Just blow it up, get on with the good stuff. I could do some really cool stuff for the island, though. But I'm just, I'm, I'm I've never watched curl. Arrow. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying Green Arrow, but I'm not. I have no interest in the TV show. Uh, the TV show's gotten quite good. I actually quite like. Like I said, I like. I love Diggle. Well, he's I mean, in the comic now. Is he's in yeah. the comic now? And I like um, Felicity. Felicity's good. And I've got to say, the Barry Allen episodes were good. He's got his own TV and show. He's out getting of it. his own TV show out of it. Yeah. My only problem with the Barry Allen, he gets hit by the lightning. The chemicals fall all over him. Yeah. And you get some tedious postmodern 21st century boring blast score. Okay. <laughs> Back in the 90s. Yeah. Well, you know, scores nowadays are a little bit boring. Anyway, Brad Jane's emailed in with some videos, some Knight Rider videos from um, No More Kings, which was a great song about Michael Knight. And he also told me the Sweep the Leg video, which was about Karate Kid, which was, uh, they were both very good. I, I was not aware of them. Were you aware of them? I was not. Do you know what that, what that is an excuse for? What? Oh, yes, of course. How could I be so stupid? I am the voice of Knight Industry <laughs> Microprocessor. I love that the, the scanner at the front's flashing, but it's sad that it doesn't go. Yeah, how could I be so stupid as to, to not think that that was an excuse to play with my kid? Which is always nice. Final email for tonight is the mighty Chris Franklin. Hello, Leyland. Oh, Chris, I just listened to episode two of Supermates. It was very good. As you listen to this, another one's probably come out. Mm. Thank you for mentioning in Supermates. In case I forget to email you, it's Murray Jane that made the deal with Mephisto. Not Peter Parker. It's a small but subtle distinction that bugs me every time people get it wrong. Peter wouldn't do that, no, and he didn't. Isn't that an actual big plot point that Mary Jane did it? I think she so. never was. Well, I always think the know. people that say that haven't read it. Peter only found out. When you think about that now, Peter has no idea that Brand New Day ever I, happened. I've only been able to bring myself to read it once, so I, but I was pretty sure that you're yeah. right. Because what but Peter doesn't know Murray Jane did it. The deal was that he never found out, so he didn't even find out at one moment in time. Right. Peter is clueless that anything happened in between Civil War and... Right. See, I've always... When I hear people whining about this... Now, I'm not saying One More Day is any good. I like it. You're an idiot. <laughs> and I'm not saying One Moment in Time is any good. I think they're both quite bad stories. Not as bad as Sins Past. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but bad. Right. Okay. And I... But... People say Pete Parker made a deal with the devil. No, he didn't. Okay. You've not read it. Yeah. No, he didn't. But the thing is, I've never been able to bring myself to go back and read it myself to be able to argue with these people because I'm, I'm like, I don't want to reread it. It was a bit crap. You know, I, I don't think I like Spider-Man enough to not like those stories. Right, yeah. I, I think you're just a passive observer. Yeah. Whereas, did you like Sins Past? Because if you did, we're going to have to fight. No, I... I did. <laughs> because it got to the point where... Straczynski's run started off really good and promising. See, the thing with Sings Past is it retroactively spoiled me on everything else he's ever written. 
<laughs> I know that's irrational. Yeah. To suddenly go Babylon 5 <laughs> just because he wrote Sins Past, but Sins Past was such an unqualified piece of tripe. Yeah. That I've, I've never been able to read anything else he's written either. Thor did that for me. Even after Spider Man. Yeah. I, I read his Thor run and thought it was one of the best stories I've ever read, and then I got to the ending and I hated it so well, cause much. Because he, he walked off the boot because it was crossing yeah. over with another title. Because it didn't end, it just stopped. And he's like, oh, I don't do that, I'm better than that. Alright, bye. Yeah. Don't let the door hit you on your ass on your way out. Yeah, it's retroactively spoiled his other work for me, because mm. since past was just unqualified drivel. Anyway, Chris's email, you've been robbed! Have we? <laughs> the clown prince of crime has absconded with your trailers, the dastardly fiend. But seriously, I've thoroughly enjoyed your examinations of these classics. And since Michael was in agreement with you on their quality, they truly earned that designation. Sure, O'Neill's dialogue can be a bit stiff, even in the modern tales, but I prefer this type of dialogue over everyone being a wise-ass and having the same snarky voice. Alright, I presume we're talking about Joker's Fireware Revenge. Yes. Yes, I do as well, Chris. I agree entirely. The 70s fashion spread over several of the Batman's rogues. Two-Face rocked a turtleneck well into the 80s, for instance. I think in the original printing of issue 251, the Joker's suit was more grey than purple, but I'd have to go and dig it out, and I'm lazy. The damn utility belt! Miles, an otherwise perfect classic. It is funny how different reprints have handled this. In the US Batman Digest from 1979, it's drawn in very badly for that epic splash. The greatest Joker stories ever told redraw is a bit better. That design did get around. I even had a pair of pyjamas with that running on the beach image. Batman had Bo Derek beat by nearly a decade. Yeah, but I'd rather watch Bo Derek run down the beach in slow-mo than Batman. I, I don't know. I'd, I'd be cool to see Batman. Running down the beach in slow-mo with Bo Derek. <laughs> Adam's very nearly created capage. Few have surpassed him at it. Well, really, only Marshall Rogers, but we'll get to him later. Oh, I, don't, I think John Byrne's good at capage. Mm. I think Byrne's a very good cape, man. Adams has said he based his treatment on Batman's cape partially on the way Christopher Lee worked his cloak in the Hammer Dracula films. So there's a British connection for you. Christopher Lee as Ras Al Ghul? Yeah. Oh, that would have been awesome. 70s Batman movie. Christopher Lee as Ras. You could do it now. He's just not found the Lazarus pit yet. <laughs> yeah, Christopher Lee's still a pretty striking bloke. I'm sure he can still. You just have it to film it quick. Yeah, very quick. I do agree. Adams is still a good artist, but sometimes I feel he's trying too hard to be Neil Adams. He's keyed on a few distinct elements of his classic art, such as his proclivity for drawing angry faces, scratchy cross hatchings, etc., and amped those up to where he's always extreme. Neil Adams. At least that's my theory on it. He really did ruin those hardcover reprints by redrawing them in my opinion comparing untouched panels to new and you can see a vast difference it's like dropping Chris Pine into an episode of the original Star Trek he's good in his own right but he doesn't belong there I'm sorry William Shatner would just outact Chris Pine on every conceivable level William, and I like really? Chris Pine as Captain Kirk he's one of the few things I do like because mm. he has managed to take a part that is uniquely identified with one man yeah. and do something with it Bombs. No, Shatner are just... Shatner are just piss all over, quite frankly. <laughs> On to the laughing fish. I love the Engelhart Rogers Austin run. Chris's email continues. And for my money, it's the best run of Batman ever. O'Neill and Adams never really had a run, just random stories over the course of three or four years. I had the good fortune to meet Rogers over 20 years ago at a dinky local comic convention. Not sure how he ended up there, but I geeked out talking to him, and he graciously signed my pile of his complete Batman works. He even commented I'd brought a few obscure ones. The opening splash is stunning. 
Rogers studied to be an architect, so that's where his ability to draw flawless cityscapes come from. Rogers drew Batman's cape better than anyone, including Adams. The cape had a real weight to it, and he was instrumental in bringing back the wrapped cape look when Batman was standing still. Adams did it on occasion, but Rogers' Batman was wrapped in darkness more often than not, influencing nearly everyone who followed. Silver St. Cloud. Ah, I love the line about Bat-Boner. She seems to get the Batman more than any other love interest. A Batman who allows himself to actually love a woman does seem a bit alien in this day and age, but Batman wasn't the unhealthy bag of psychoses he is now. I didn't realise Kevin Smith revisited the Bruce Silver romance. Not sure how I'd take his version of it, but it may be worth looking into. You know, the last time that Bruce Wayne was invested into a, a, a lady friend... Jezebel Jet. Yes, she, she ended up uh, manipulated him and just... Dis- Destroying and him. This is why mentally. he doesn't trust uh, women. Yeah. This is why he is a, a bag of psychoses. It's, mm-hmm. you know. it's women's fault. Yes. Isn't everything? Uh, I believe the dead bodies on the cover of Tech 476 are meant to be the bodies of editor Julia Schwartz, Marshall Rogers, and Terry Austin. And I never like the lens flare on the last page either. I'm with Michael. Kind of ruins an otherwise perfect image. You two know about the Batman Dark Detective miniseries follow-up by Englehart, Rogers and Austin, right? Came out in 2005 and it wasn't bad. Didn't exactly recapture the feel of the original run, but came close. A follow-up was planned but scrapped due to Rogers' untimely death. Yeah, you know what's irritating about that? Mm-hmm. Originally announced as a 12-issue miniseries, right. DC pulled the plug on it after six issues okay. to say we'll do the other six at a later date. Marshall Rogers passed away. If they'd have stuck with their original 12-issue plan, yeah. we'd have got that complete series. Because obviously Steve Englehart's not interested in doing it without Marshall Rogers. Yeah. There was another pseudo-sequel in the Batman colouring book I had as a kid. Joker actually does create Joker burgers. I kid you not. He has his own chain of fast food joints, like a certain other grease-slinging clown. <laughs> Hello, Ronald. It had a great cover by Dick Giordano. I need to get a new copy someday. Here it is, and there's a link to eBay. Looking forward to the personal faves next week as they are faves of mine as well. Take uh, Chris. Well, thank you very much for emailing in Chris. As we give John Wilson a big plug, Dave Walker does Flash podcast, Flash Legacies. We'll mm-hmm. plug Dave as well, since he had an email. And uh, we've mentioned Chris's Supermates podcast, which is well worth checking out. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with a very special episode of Hey Kids Comics. He said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limson.com
gentlemen and children of all ages, welcome to a very special episode of Hey Kids Comics, in which Michael and I kick it old school and take us back to the very premise of the show from when we originally started out. A cross-generational show showcasing the differences in comics, new and old, in which I bring a comic and Michael brings a comic. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but Andrew, you're thinking, you didn't actually do that very much. Well, yes, lovely listeners, you are correct. We did it a little bit, but the show pretty much became its own thing very quickly, and ultimately bore scant resemblance to its original conception. So, for one week only... Maybe. We're returning to those halcyon days. I pick a comic. Michael picks a comic. Pretty simple premise when you think about it. Yeah. First up, my choice for I am the elder and thus the better. And so I get to go first with my stone cold gem of a comic book. Star-Lord, a sci-fi classic from the comics Bronze Age creative team supreme of Chris Clermont, John Byrne and Terry Austin with Tom Osichowski and, in my version, Glynis Oliver, formerly Glynis Ween. It's like the X-Men of Elder Reunion, isn't it? Mm-hmm. First appearing in Magnificent Monochrome as part of Marvel's black and white magazine line that included titles such as Planet of the Apes, Rampaging Hulk and Dracula Lives, they had the biggest success with Savage Sword of Conan. This line was a noble experiment on behalf of Marvel to not only expand the market to an older audience, but also to push the boundaries a little on what they could and could not get away with showing in a comic magazine. Perhaps they were inspired by heavy metal. Anyway, Star-Lord had previously appeared in Marvel Preview Issue 4 by Steve Englehart and Steve Gann, where he was portrayed rather deliberately by Englehart as a bit of a d***. Star-Lord's real name was Peter Quill, a rather prickly individual, who was also a liar and a cheat, stealing his power in an effort to avenge his dead mother. The strip did well enough that a return appearance was booked for Marvel Preview Issue 11, but with none of the original creative team involved. The cover of the initial print run has a cover blurb stating that the comic is in the vein of the work of Robert Heinlein, until Heinlein's lawyers made them take it off and reprint the book with a cover that lacked that little piece of sales-enticing name-dropping. So they could have just lost out on a bunch of sales? Yes, because they didn't ask for permission to use Robert Heinlein's name. Of course, I didn't know any of this when I first read this as serialised in the pages of Star Wars Weekly back in the 70s. As we've mentioned over the past couple of weeks, Marvel UK, with its weekly instead of monthly publishing schedule, was always looking forward to material to fill its comics, and this 50-page slice of space opera will have been manna from heaven. It's apt that this story should be reprinted in those pages, as it has the same lineage, origins and inspirations as George Lucas's saga, and one would have thought that its release, which coincided sided with Star Wars in the summer of 77 would have yielded more favourable sales and reception. My copy of this is not the original printing from Marvel Preview. The story, now coloured, and with a few additional pages by artist Michael Golden, was reprinted in Star-Lord The Special Edition, cover dated February 1982, and this version was re-reprinted in Star-Lord Magazine, cover dated November 1996, with a new cover by Byrne and Austin, which is the one I have. There it is. Mm-hmm. You can hear it. Okay. Proper comic, no digital filth on this show. Well, until we, so, until we need to do digital filth, yeah. The story is separated into four distinct chapters. Chapter one is entitled Windholm, with an umlaut over the O. Did you like that? And Brudhaven, yeah. Brudhaven, yeah. 
On the frontier world of Windholm, a thousand parsecs out from the Imperial Center, a younger boy named Kit Holm is one of the few thousand children from a population of eight million to have survived the devastating attack on his homeworld by the slavers of the Galactic Empire, an event that saw him witness firsthand their brutality when they cold-bloodedly killed his parents before his eyes. Kip, however, is not going down without a fight, and, when herded on the slaver ship, makes attempts to fight back. He's rewarded with a punishing beating, but before he can be made an example of, the lights dim and Kip is spirited away by Sandy, a red-haired typical burn girl who informs Kip that whilst they may have prevented him from instant death when they hit the base on Canada, the slavers will simply flush the vessel with knockout gas. Suddenly, a blurring klaxon brings into question if they will ever get there. On the bridge view screen, a man sits in the vacuum of space, unharmed by the environment. All becomes apparent when a ship forms around the man and opens fire, crippling the slaver vessel and allowing the man easy access. The ensuing battle between the man who calls himself Star-Lord and the troopers conveniently causes a rifle blaster to blow a hole into the slaver pens where, equally conveniently, Kip and Sandy are located. Kip seizes a fallen trooper's blaster and aids Star-Lord in his fight. Star-Lord makes for the bridge but finds it abandoned, and a series of charges are set to explode, which they do, blowing Star-Lord out into space. As he fights his way back inside, Kip has freed more of the slaves who engage in a brutal battle with their captors, ending in a bloody victory for the former slaves. They all wish to return to their respective homeworlds, but Star-Lord says that those planets are dead. Only Vindholm survives, and a few more days that wouldn't have even been the case. Star-Lord and his sentient craft ship drop the newly freed slaves off to make Vindholm a hospitable environment again, but Kip and Sandy stay aboard to aid Star-Lord in his quest to find the slaver's base. Kip is a windrunner, a high-range psychic, and ship can monitor his thoughts. Using the Empire ship, Kip is able to backtrack their course, revealing their target, a man named Kairos Shakate, a merchant on Delta Corianis IV, otherwise known as Cinnabar. Uh, because this is such a long comic, we're going to split each chapter up, which seems to be the most logical way of doing it, didn't it? Mm-hmm. The opening couple of pages and the final three pages are a wraparound by artist Michael Golden. Golden does a pretty good burn impression, but given that it's Terry Austin inking, that adds to the illusion that it is burn. But I do wonder why they felt the need to add this new framing sequence for the 82 reprint. It doesn't really add anything to the story. It's like adding a frame to Star Wars of old Uncle Luke telling his grandkids the story of the Galactic Empire. The sequence is set 20 or so years after the events of the story, with Peter Quill Sr. abdicating his authority to Kip. Later that night, Star-Lord returns, and he and his father journey back into space to whatever adventure they may find. So basically the same ending as the actual comic. Did you you notice that the the art was different in the first couple of pages? Uh, No, but going back to look at it, it is noticeable. It is. Golden's doing a pretty damn good Burn impersonation. And the yeah. fact that Terry Austin's inking it... But it's not Burn at the same time. Yeah. It's noticeably not Burn. But there are elements of it where you look and go, that could be Burn. Yeah. So it, it is... You know, it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. Mm. But I just didn't think it was necessary. So this basically means this is a reprint of a reprint. Yeah. It's not a reprint of the original story, because this is all coloured, obviously. Yeah, I, I quite like the framing device. Did you? I think the ending is better with it. 
Well, I suppose the only reason I can think of, I don't know if this is true, this is just me spitballing, the only thing I can think of is when it was originally done, it was, for want of a better word, a pilot for a series that ultimately never happened. Starlord made a couple more appearances in the preview. In the back of this. Yeah. Well, this, that was a Timothy Zahn series in the 90s. Yeah. So that's this, the reason this probably got reprinted. Was because of that. Was because of that. So, but it, the, the series never materialised. Mm. I believe Starlord ends up in Guardians of the Galaxy, doesn't he? But I've never read any Guardians of the Galaxy. I wouldn't know. So, so I don't know. So I can only assume that the framing sequence gives more closure to the story. Yeah. That Starlord was off having adventures for 20 years, finally came back for his dad and then went off and had more adventures. Mm. So it leaves it open-ended enough that if you want to go back and fill those gaps in, prequel-wise... But it gives a conclusion if you don't. But it concludes it if you don't. Yeah, it's the only reason I can think of it. Yeah. Thinking of it that way, I hadn't considered that. But you're right that the framing sequence gives it more closure than the actual story does. Mm. In that way that it was a, a, a... the first issue of what was going to be a series that never happened. Yeah. So, alright, fair enough. Maybe I've changed my mind on that slightly. This was the first time John Byrne and Terry Austin had worked together. And it's pretty impressive how quickly the pair of them mesh. The art isn't quite as polished as their X-Men work, but it is detailed and vibrant and simply gorgeous to look at. Byrne, it has to be said, is not a fan of this colouring job. He was complimentary to colourist Glynis Wayne, who he said did as good a job as could be expected, but the art was drawn to be seen in black and white and magazine-sized. To that end, both he and Inca Terry Austin used a number of artistic tricks, including zipper tone and shading for certain sequences, that they would not have done had this been intended for a colour publication. I thought the colouring was fine, yeah, but I can see his point like that foreground figure on the big double page splash that opens the story is a bit dark. Yeah. Because in the black and white one, that's shaded. Mm. And it does look good. Yeah. But here, uh, I can see what he means. Some of it does look a bit muddy. The sequence that he's particularly not fond of is the underwater bit that happens further in the story. Mm. He, think that's, he thinks that looks appalling in colour. Right. I don't agree with him that it looks appalling. Yeah, yeah. But I can see his point having looked at some black and white pages on the internet. There was a lot of typical space opera story devices in the story, probably why I responded to it so much as a kid. The bridge of the slaver ship bears a startling resemblance to the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Yeah, I picked up on that. Kip is a high-range psychic. Starlord himself has numerous space-aids gadgets at his disposal. And there is the obligatory evil empire that needs bringing to its knees by a plucky band of young rebels. It would be easy to call this a rip-off of Star Wars. Easy, but incorrect, because it ignores two salient points. Number one, this was first published in the summer of 1977, just one month after Star Wars came out in the United States, although a number of months before it would open worldwide, and as such must have been in production well before the creative team knew about the film. And B, Star Wars is... As much a mishmash of Flash Gordon, the Robin Hood legend, and the works of Robert Heinlein as this story is. So I think it's much more a case of both stories took their inspiration from the same source than it's any kind of rip-off. Because that also implies that Star Wars is a bastion of originality. Yeah. Which it isn't. Much as I love it, it isn't startlingly original when you know its origins. Lots of Clermont-isms 
in this book. You can almost have a checklist <laughs> of Clermontisms at this point. The fight has no quarter given. Tick. Sandy is a typical Clermont leading girl, feisty and attractive, with a distinct speech pattern. Tick. And is very much in charge. And Star-Lord has a lot of moments of self-doubt. Although I suppose that can be said to be true of many of Marvel's characters. Mm. Can't it? That they're all, all a little bit self-pitying. <laughs> Whoa, in in many ways, yes. yes. As with all heroes' journeys, Kip has to lose his parents to provide impetus for vengeance. And like Star Wars, Clermont throws the reader right into the action. And we're playing catch-up for most of the first chapter. Not a bad thing by any means. It requires that the reader is paying full attention. And it follows the old writer's maxim that you start as far into your story as you can. Hmm. And this starts pretty far into the story. Yeah. It would be pretty easy to imagine somebody else writing this and having all that stuff with Kip and his parents that we learn as a flashback later yeah. be the opening of the story which would be boring mm. this starts with action it's pretty brutal action as well well you never see he just says they've burned everyone over the age of 17 mm. which you never see it's pretty terrifying because well because you <laughs> yeah you don't you don't say well it was written for Marvel Preview which was a newsstand magazine so there's no code yeah so they were pushing the boundaries of, uh, of what they could get away with I'll mention something about that later okay that may get you a bit excited do you not think there was too much in it for its own good, though? Um, I th- especially his mental powers, which he uses once and is never brought up again. And is never mentioned again. Yeah, yeah. the the planet with all the cool little, well, what could be the gambling planet they go to in Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, but, yeah, it is a little bit like um, Carillon, isn't it? Yeah, but I thought there was too much in this. I don't. No, it's one of, I agree with you. Yeah. I don't disagree with the point that you're making that this is dense. Yeah. There and is a an, lot of it is unnecessary as well. Yeah. Maybe not unnecessary, it's building a world. Yeah, that, it's world building. But it's kind of unnecessary world building from a story point of view. Because he never got to follow up on any of it. Yeah, it, it thinks, well, like his mental powers, uses it once, it's never brought up again for the rest of the story. Yeah. It's, uh, I think this goes back to the idea that he was, he, essentially, this was a pilot. Yeah. And he's throwing a lot of stuff into this first story. In case they pick up. That at some point he would have picked up upon and, and done other stuff with. Yeah. I don't disagree that it's dense. It's a Chris Claremont comic. Yeah. <laughs> After all, <laughs> clues in the name. But I don't know, I, th- I don't mind that. Because if you think about Star Wars, which we are going to compare it to. Yeah. Even though I've frequently said this is just shows the same parents, essentially. I, I thought it was more similar to Battlestar Galactica in some ways than Star Wars. But Battlestar Galactica shows the same parents. Oh, yeah. They're all the drinking same. from the same well. Yeah. Essentially, they're, they're going in different directions from the basic premise but all of them are taking the same pulp sci-fi origins and ideas and then doing something with them. Mm. But it's the same as Star If you think about ignore everything you now know about Star Wars, there's an awful lot of world-building in that that you can argue isn't necessary. And all the stuff about the Clone Wars that Ben tells Luke, yeah, that's all backstory. But looking back on it, it was all things he brought up again. Yeah, well, see, this is maybe he would have done. Yeah. I do agree with you that there is some stuff that does seem just thrown in for the sake of throwing it in. And I do agree that it's densely packed and a lot of it isn't followed up on. Mm. But at the same time, I 
quite like that. Is it the singing dwarfs in The Hobbit? Yes. There's no need for it, but... But it was fun. Yeah. So, you know... But yeah, it's a good point, but I think it can be made about a lot of... I mean, in the X-Men, he would, he would do this all the time. Yeah. He was like an idea factory. He'd throw stuff out. Yeah. And then 16 issues down the line, he'd go, oh yeah, I introduced that ages ago. Maybe I should do something with it. And you get the feeling he's done the same with this, but unfortunately he didn't get to, to follow up on it mm. in any great way. Part two is called Cinnabar. Arriving at their destination, Star-Lord, Kip, Sandy and Ship's Widget, a flying robot that means Ship can accompany Star-Lord on missions, boards Shikati's vessel looking for the computer core, only to be attacked by Melian constructs, androids designed to be the ultimate soldiers. The trio fight bravely, but Widget is damaged, which takes Ship out of the game, and wounds Star-Lord, and the constructs manage to herd them towards a sliding panel. Before they can enter, the floor beneath them opens, and they suddenly find themselves on Vindholm, fighting a Kraken sea beast, an event straight out of Kip's memories. Star-Lord manages to deduce what is real and what isn't, and chooses to fire the laser blaster he believes is in his hand, destroying Shakati's telepathic crystal that had tapped into Kip's memory. Shikati has also seen Star-Lord's memories and knows who he really is, something that Star-Lord himself seems oblivious to. Shikati lures Star-Lord in with talk of words meant only for his ears, but Sandy kills Shikati when his treachery to kill Star-Lord with a finger blaster is exposed. Star-Lord sets about downloading the data he needs as Sandy and Kit decide now is the time for nooking. It's interrupted by Shikati's nephews who decide to flee to tell the prince about Star-Lord. Star-Lord obtains the data and ship streaks down to them, pulling the threesome out of the palace as it blows up due to the anti-grav generators being set to high. Star-Lord learns that the stripped planets were being used by the slavers to finance a coup d'etat with Prince Gareth replacing the current emperor. Ship plots a course to Sparta. How's my Jared Butler impression? Did you like that? Jared Butler! <laughs> I'm just adding a new one to the repertoire. Oh, uh, yeah. This is Sparta! We need a new one. But <laughs> do we? Do we really? Uh, ship can provide widget, uh, a little floating robot type thing that accompanies Star-Lord on his travels, providing him with data roaming, essentially, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it is. Ship and Star-Lord have an empathic rapport, which means they both feel the other's pain, and presumably other things as well. Ship can also manifest herself in hologrammatic form, and she prefers to take the appearance of an attractive woman. In the sequel to this, written by Clermont, but drawn by Carmen Infantino, she prefers to take the form of a woman who doesn't wear any clothes. Does she really? She does. Nudity. Thumbs up. <laughs> Comics code. It's not Marvel preview, no yeah. code. I think it was issue 14 mm. after this one. I've yeah. not read it. You know what so else I've noticed? Goes, what? The, the ship never stays the same. It kind of... It, uh, it does stay the same. What, what do you mean? It doesn't. It changes. You no, know, that's the angle. It does change, stay the same. It doesn't change it doesn't its shape. Uh, or I didn't notice if it does that. I'll keep my eye on for that as we're leafing through the comic. I didn't notice that. The alien worlds depicted herein are absolutely gorgeous, especially on this opening plash page for Cinnabar. Much better than any special effects of the time could manage. The action is frenetic. Byrne and Austin's art is exceptional and Clermont's script is fast-paced and exciting. The section in the middle is an elaborate sequence that goes on for a bit too long. Yeah. I have to confess. 
were Star-Lord, Kip and Sandy are suddenly taken back to Vindholm. Uh, it's magnificently rendered, but, you know, good visuals. Star-Lord managed to switch his mind between reality and fantasy. And the on-sea fight with the Kraken Beast is wonderfully realised. This is the section that I was on about earlier on that Byrne is particularly not fond of. Him and Austin used a lot of um, zipper tone and shading on the underwater sequences yeah. to make them appear slightly out of sync and blurry because it's underwater. In colour, he thinks they all look muddy. I can see his point. Yeah. They do look better in the black and white scans I've seen, mm. but it didn't distract from the, the artwork or the story, did it? No, no. I didn't look at it and go, ooh, that was awful. I actually thought this was pretty good. Again... This this could be the scene in Phantom Menace, where there's always a bigger fish. Yeah. Couldn't it? It went on a bit long, this sequence, for my liking. Yeah. It's, uh, six pages devoted to this was perhaps a bit much. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's a good, exciting action beat. With a flashback. Yeah, and it builds on Kip's parents and his time on Vindholm and all of that stuff. So it's it's moderately important. Perhaps it, could, it didn't need to be six pages long basically especially seeing as we learn it's all a, hol- a holographic hallucination it was all an elaborate ruse an elaborate ruse yes Kip and Sandy falling in love seemed extremely arbitrary yeah didn't they it? just did for the sake of it yeah all of a sudden there's I love you the details don't matter you're like what when <laughs> in between panels in between panels they've known each other for two days yeah I mean you know the Beatles do you believe in love at first sight I'm sure that it happens all the time but it's not like it was at first sight, was it? When they first met, they just kind of like palled around. He didn't look at her yeah. and go, wow. Maybe she walked in again. <laughs> Give him another chance to look <laughs> at her and go, wow. <laughs> she reminds me of Jill St. John, who you probably won't know who that is. No. She plays Robin in the first episode of The Adamus Batman. You know, she's dressed in the Robin suit. She gives you a happy feeling down there and you're wondering why, because you think it's supposed <laughs> to be Robin. Okay. And she's in Diamonds Are Forever, the James Bond film. Okay. Still don't know who she is, though. No. Oh, well, never mind. I mean, it's entirely possible that, you know, it took them a while to get from place to place, and they've spent that time off-panel getting acquainted. Yeah. I mean, she gives him is... every exclusive, if you know what I mean. Well, it's not time travel. Oh, it's space travel. But space travel, yeah, all right, fair enough. Uh, I did find it hysterical that star main weapon is a water pistol. Why not? I mean, it says he can control earth, earth, fire, and water. Yeah. The elements. So presumably he could fire mud if he wanted to. That'd that'd really mess him up. Yeah, that would have really buggered him up. It's in a spaceship, but a water pistol. Yeah. All right, fair enough. I loved the sequence in the middle of this chapter where ship zooms down to save them. Story heats up to be about saving the current regime instead of overthrowing it, which is a different take on the rebellion theme at the start of the story. The shortest chapter of the four, mm. I think. Very exciting, very interesting. Bit long in the Kraken Sea Beast bit. Very good, though. Chapter three, Sparta! Do you like that? I do. Arriving at Sparta! Looks, <laughs> the ship looks completely different there as well. It does keep changing. Let's have a see. Yeah, it's it's not got bat wings, has it? You'll notice. Yeah, well, the you, only time you know, I did not notice that. The only time you see it on the inside is it's just a floating cockpit. Yeah, the the which the, I, I did quite like. Yeah, the the idea, the implication is that the ship is transparent from the inside. Yeah, which would make finding the toilet troublesome. Yeah, what would you imagine? The invisible jet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on the toilet. Yeah, you 
know what? I don't know. It's just like a ship does change depending on what she's doing. What I kind of got from yeah. it was that only the cockpit was physical and the rest of it kind of changed around it. Right, so only the cockpit was, was stationary. Like, she can manifest herself. She That's the ship manifesting. Yeah. All right, no, that's a good idea. That, I did not notice that. Right, okay, good call. Sparta! <laughs> is part three. Arriving at Sparta! Ship is engaged in battle by Imperial cruisers and takes heavy damage. Star-Lord convinces Kip and Sandy, well, Kip, Sandy's having none of it, and therefore Star-Lord is forced to knock her out, to take the lifeboat to Sparta, as Ship is far too damaged and he's falling into Sparta atmosphere. Should I say Sparta's atmosphere? Three days later, Ship has crashed into the snowy wastes of Sparta, while search parties troll the area. Star-Lord captures one such patroller and interrogates him using the Hypnoprobe, not the Hypnoprobe, and learns that while Ship was recuperating, Kip and Sandy were captured and taken to the chalet of Prince Gareth. Star-Lord, clothed in the captured guard's uniform, leaves Ship, but not before Ship gives him a weapon, a sword, as no firearms are allowed on Sparta! Star-Lord locates Kip and Sandy in the chalet and rescues them. They are in detention block AA-23, but they are discovered by Gareth and his bodyguard, Rurothkara, a Sith Lord of the Aragorn Confederacy. I'm not making that up. He's a Sith Lord. Star-Lord recognises Rurothkara as the Argurian lizard being who killed his mother and dispatches the creature to hell. The battle also providing distraction for Kip and Sandy to take the evidence of the coup to the Emperor. Star-Lord then turns to Prince Gareth and they duel to the death. Gareth gains the upper hand and removes Star-Lord's mask with the tip of his sword, but so stunned is he by the face he sees, it gives Star-Lord time to lash out, recover Gareth's sword, and place the prince at his mercy. Sadly, despite killing but minutes ago, he now can't bring himself to do it, and Gareth steals the opportunity back, pitching a dagger into Star-Lord's turned back. The blade is poisoned, leaving Gareth to claim this is all a ruse to the Emperor, but as Star-Lord falls, he manages to pitch his sword into Gareth's heart. The Prince falls off the ledge of the chalet to his death as his men round on Star-Lord. Ship's timely arrival, however, prevents his immediate death, as does the arrival of the Emperor. Peter Jason Quill, Star-Lord's father. I am your father. It's all very familiar, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, burn, 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 burn. Burn really lets loose with the arts. Burn, 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 burn. Burn, 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 burn. Burn, 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 chicken in the bowl. Burn, 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 the chicken's head in. Burn, 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 the gravy and some vegetables. Burn, 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 burn. That's really lets loose with the art in many of these two-page spreads, and the one that opens this chapter is excellent. This kind of space opera dogfight is always fun and very welcome, but Byrne doesn't skimp or make it all fun. Ship has opened fire on an Imperial cruiser, destroying the canopy, and there are dead bodies just floating around in space. That is an absolutely awesome splash. See that aircraft carrier behind them? Yeah. That is so similar to the aircraft carriers in space they'd have in Starship Troopers. Okay. Which is your Robert Highland connection. Yeah. Isn't it? You ever seen Starship Troopers? No. It's very good. <laughs> it is really, really fun. Okay. Isn't that the one with the brain 
yeah, alien thing. The bug brain and right. um, Barney from Oh I Met Your Mother. Barney's in it. Yeah, Barney's in it as a Hitler-esque interrogator. Okay. I mean, the acting's appalling. Well, yeah. I mean, let's be honest, it's got Casper Van Damme in it, not Casper Van Damme. Casper Van Dien? Casper Diem, something or other? Okay. Anyway, him. Right. He's like a huge block of wood. Right. And then you've got Denise Richards. Okay. Pretty to look at. Not much in the acting stakes. So the two lead actors are pretty appalling. Okay. But Barney's good, and it's a fun film. And it's okay. got a beauty in it. Right. So you can't go around by having a beauty in it. Okay. Starship Troopers is great. You should uh, should track that down. Didn't we have it on video? Yes, we did used to have it on video and I've just never got around to replacing it on DVD because it's one of those every time it's on, on TV yeah. I just leave it on because <laughs> it's, it's on all the time. Fair it's always on ITV4, I think. It turns out that a ship is not a sentient computer, rather a ship, a living ship, like Moya in Firescape. Yeah. She's very Moya, now I come to think of it, isn't she? Yeah. Although Moya obviously doesn't change shape because she's a living being, mm. which is a different thing, but yeah. You know the escape pod they use? Yes. That's the rocket that they sell Kal-El in, in the Superman animated TV show. It is a bit. <laughs> Burn was so good at designing stuff like this that other people just nicked him. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Ripped him off wholesale in many classes. Um, speaking of which, Burn's design of ship is excellent. As Michael's pointed out, it does change shape. Which I'd not noticed in all the times that I'd read this, so fur plate here. It does look like the perfectly smooth, shiny vessels in Phantom Menace. Yeah. Do you know what I think? The ones that look like mirrors. But the design is more aggressive looking. So there are, there are shots in this where it more resembles the Klingon Bird of Prey from Star Trek Three. Yeah. In its basic shape. From the inside... As Michael pointed out earlier, everything is transparent, so the interior shots, it just looks like Star Lord's walking up and down in space. Yeah. Which is a cool visual. That is really, really good. Wouldn't my, um, Kip's now dressed like Luke Skywalker, isn't he? His yeah. little wraparound white tunic. The guard that Star Lord knocks out is wearing a costume that conveniently covers his face. Convenient, I say, so that Starlord can wear this costume and sneak into the place where he's not wanted. Yeah. A little side note, he bears a striking resemblance to the central character of just a guy named Joe from Amazing Spider-Man issue 38. That's a Ditko mask. Well, I was going to say it looks like the, the guys who work for Hellfire, who Wolverine mm. guts in the sewers. Mm. Yes, he does have a, a resemblance to them. Oh, Deadpool, if you want to go down that road. Yeah, but Deadpool was Rob Liffield, and he's a bastion of originality. Oh, of course, yeah. The ships that the search party's coming, that looks like Jupiter 2 from Lost in Space. That could just be a coincidence <laughs> more than anything. But. Sparta! Is this, is this the origin of every single space-related design? Well, Lost in Space was before this. Yeah, yeah. So that could be Burn paying a homage. It looks a little bit like Jupiter 2. It may just be purely coincidental. You know, how many different ways can you design a UFO, really? Well, just look at ship. Yeah. <laughs> many different ways in many different panels. Yeah. Apparently so. Sparta has a code duello, which means that firearms are not allowed and all duelings must take place with a weapon that is no longer than the wielder's arm. Funnily, Clermont will slightly mock this in the final confrontation where he points out the anachronistic nature of sword duels in a high-tech futuristic environment. Did you notice that? There is an unreal quality of the combat that the fate of a galaxy-spanning empire should be decided by two men dueling with swords on a ledge a mile high above the ground. Yeah. A little bit of 
what's that though? A little bit of meta before meta. Claymore was so ahead of his time. But how cool are sword fights though in stories that they don't belong in? Like when Batman has a sword fight with mm. Rachel Ghoul, how cool is that? Yeah, that he has. Yeah, sword fights are cool. Yeah. There should be more of them. You know who the guy he fights looks like? Who? Timothy Dalton in, uh, in Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon, yeah. He so totally does, yeah. He's degraded, he's her up a bit, but yeah, he's Prince, what's his name, isn't he, from Flash Gordon? I've forgotten his name. How many times have I watched Flash Gordon? I've forgotten the guy's name. It's on every Christmas. I've got it on the DVR <laughs> for watching again when your mum will let me. Oh, would you not again? Yeah, we are. <laughs> the ending of this chapter has a huge contradiction within but a few pages. Star-Lord has no problem killing Ruothkarar, stabbing him through the heart the first chance he gets. But in the duel with Lord Gareth, he suddenly gains a conscience. Lizard people don't count. Do they not? No. Are they not real, real people? They have no souls. <laughs> Alright, fair enough. I get Clermont's trying to move Star-Lord away from the cold-hearted character that I understand he was in Engelhart's story, but this story is just odd. You yeah. just killed that guy, <laughs> lizard-shaped though he may be, and cut. Captain Kurt refused to kill the lizard guy. Yeah. Star-Lord had no problem gutting him, but he won't kill Timothy Dalton. <laughs> maybe he's a fan. Yes, yeah, maybe he just wants his autograph. <laughs> maybe he likes Space Jam. You'll need to be Bond one day. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I can't kill you. You'll never go up to be Bond. Yeah, there's also... Star-Lord stabbed by Gareth's dagger that he's poisoned. And Star-Lord just concentrates and lets his body handle the poison. Yeah. Now, That's a surefire way to get yourself killed from the poison. Well, this goes back to what you were saying earlier on, that there's so much thrown out here that there's no time to actually explain all of it. Yeah. Clermont is very vague as to just what Star-Lord can do, isn't he? Mm. I mean, we've seen him survive in the vacuum of space, so we're left to presume a poison is no serious threat, but... Some indication that he could just go, I will will this poison out of my body would have been nice. Yeah. But it's not set up or anything, is it? Mm. All right. Burner said on his webpage that he's lost interest in this project a couple of pages from the end, which may be why that page in particular, the last page of, of chapter three, looks much more Terry Austin than John Byrne. Yeah. It's entirely possible he only did loose layouts for the last couple of pages. Why did he lose interest? He just, he just, just says he lost interest in it towards the end. He said he just wasn't there, he just wasn't feeling it. Fair enough. Finished the strip and moved on. Probably why there wasn't a sequel, I would imagine. Yeah. If he wasn't interested in doing one. It could be I'm just seeing things that aren't there. But that looks more Terry Austin than Bird and Austin to me. If you compare the faces on that page to that page. Yeah. Anyway, what do I know? Nothing. <laughs> As we prove every week. <laughs> Part four is called The Hollow Crown. Sadly not. Sparta. Peter Quill Sr. tells Peter Quill Jr., Star-Lord, how he came to crash land on Earth years before, where he was saved from death in his burning starship by Meredith, the woman who would become his mother. Peter returned to the stars following the outbreak of war and promised to return to Meredith. However, the events of war meant that that proved impossible and Quill sent Gareth to retrieve Meredith and her son. Gareth instead arranged Durothkarar to kill Meredith and told Quill they had both died in childbirth. With Star-Lord now returned, they can rule together as father and son. Star-Lord doesn't want to rule, nor does he want a kingdom. He leaves Kip and Sandy with his father and returns to ship 
where they venture out far beyond the stars. Oh dear. Here, I have my friends. But bye. Yeah. Here, these guys can steer you. I've got, I don't want him and her shagging on my ship. There's no walls. <laughs> where do you think all that fluid goes? And can you imagine the smell? <laughs> Not happening. They're staying here with you. Okay. No choice. Right. I had a huge problem with this ending. Did you? Yes. As a kid, I probably didn't even think about it. But let me let me paint the scene. Quill Senior crash lands on Earth. Is in a bad way and is nursed back to health by a comely Earth lass. The spaceship crashing and bursting into flames. Never investigated. All right, I can accept that. They begin this whirlwind courtship that culminates with her getting pregnant. Also, okay, fine. When Quill Senior recovers and fixes the ship, he leaves knowing she's pregnant. And not only that, he wipes her memory of the events. So, basically, Meredith wakes up one morning, finds out she's up the duff with no idea how this happened. To make matters worse, we learn Meredith immediately married her childhood sweeter after these events. So he whoever he is, as he doesn't rate another mention, thinks Peter Quill Jr. is his. Did the, did the makers of Superman Returns watch read this comic, do you think? Um, yeah. Alright. Either way you look at this, this doesn't paint Meredith or Quill Sr. in a good light. Either she was in a relationship with her childhood sweetheart before Quill Sr. arrived and dumped him for Peter, or he carried a torch for all the time she was with Peter and jumped at the chance to be with her after Quill Sr. left. For his part, Quinn Senior just comes across as a scumbag. He rocks up on Earth, because Earth girls are easy, rocks out on an Earth lady, then buggers off when he learns she's pregnant and wipes her mind of her ever having met him. What a If only men could do that. It's like the mind wipe also creates much more problems than it solves. Did no one ever ask where Peter had gone? Yeah. He's been around for a couple of months. Did she just keep him secret? Presuming his mind wipe didn't work on everybody, they'd be confused where Meredith's new beau had gone, wouldn't they? And why is Starlord called Peter Quill if Meredith didn't remember Quill Sunya and thinks that the child is this off-panel childhood sweetheart? Uh, that made no sense! Maybe the, the mind wipe wore off? What, before she was killed? Yeah. And she retroactively renamed him Peter Quill? Like, slapped in the face of the guy that had actually raised the child. Doesn't matter, they're dead now. <laughs> well, yeah, this is true. I could be being unfair to Chris Claremont here. It's entirely possible that these were dangling plot threads from Engelhart's story, which, again, I confess I've not read. But it seems to me it would have been much simpler and avoided all these questions if Meredith had been heavily pregnant when Peter Quill Sr. left. Like, eight and a half to nine months pregnant, right? So that way it's even on first. She wakes wakes up during labour. No, no, listen to me. He tells Meredith that his ship's jerry-rigged. He says that in this. Yeah. He's not sure this even going to get him out of the atmosphere, let alone all the way back home. Mm -hmm. So he could say it's likely to kill us all and he doesn't want to risk his, his wife, girlfriend, whatever, and their unborn child. Yeah. I could buy that. That's still moderately noble. No, this may blow up when I get into space. You stay here. Yeah. All right. I'd buy that. I mean, then he gets waylaid with the war, sends Gareth and Rukathara, who proceed to kill her, and all your problems are solved. Yeah. Aren't they? With just that one change. 
He doesn't appear to be an utter deadbeat who ditches his pregnant girlfriend and makes her forget him. Meredith doesn't die without knowing what the hell's going on. Hell, if she hadn't been mind-wiped, she may have been prepared for this. And Peter being named after his father suddenly makes a little bit more sense. Mm. What do you think? Uh, I honestly hadn't noticed until you pointed it out. I mean, you know, like I said, this may have all been in the previous story. Employment's just following up on it. I don't know that. Either way, it doesn't make any sense. No. Anyway, ignoring part four's rather silly and unnecessary explanation for Quill Senior's departure from Earth, I know this was rollicking good space opera. High concept science fiction perfectly suited to the post-Star Wars environs it was published in. Sadly, it didn't lead to a regular series by the same creative team, as I would have been all over that. Clermont, as is his wont, packs this story to the rafters with during do excitement, adventure, and really wild things. Making this 50-page story one to savour and immerse oneself in, rather than being a quick read you can breeze through on a trip to the loo. The fast pace zips over any slight issues in the plot, except possibly the ending. Let's be honest, we're not given a lot of motivation for Prince Gareth, nor is the landscape and the world building particularly well thought out, as Michael has pointed out. The Imperial Empire makes it sound like they are the bad guys to begin with, but in the end... There, the government Star-Lord ends up fighting on behalf of. And the Sandy-Kit relationship is the very definition of broad strokes. However, it is action-packed, fun to read, and a damn sight more fulfilling in terms of value for money than some of the more recent stories we've covered. <coughs> Pavel Zombies! <laughs> Bird and Austin are an excellent team from the beginning, and the art shines. Whilst it does look better in oversized black and white... The cheaper colour alternatives are well worth tracking down, although they do contain the rather superfluous framing story. To see just how densely packed Clermont's story is, and it is Clermont's story, Berners said he was not a plotter or had any story input on this project. One only has to compare it to the preview of the then impending Star-Lord miniseries by Star Wars author Timothy Zahn and artist Dan Lawless in the back of the magazine. This six-page preview has less speech balloons on the first three pages than Clermont did in one page of the original. The painted art isn't that good either. Uh, I don't mind it. It didn't make me want to pick up the series. Yeah, I didn't read it. What did you think of uh, of Star-Lord? I liked it. Did you? Yeah, kind of. Only kind of? I did like it as a whole. Yeah. I liked bits of it that were reminiscent of Battlestar Galactica and Star Wars. I liked them, but there were other bits that I didn't quite like as much. Like what? I don't know. I wasn't... I wasn't as big on the story as I would on the concepts. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of good ideas in it. Yeah. That are ripe for further exploration. Like I said, I don't know if anyone ever did. I know Clermont did one sequel mm. with Carman Infantino sorry, and Boobies. Okay. Never a bad thing. No. Boobies. <laughs> I love that the word boobies makes you laugh. You're <laughs> such a child. But it's the word boobies. Say boobs. It's like, yeah, whatever. But boobies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, there's a there's a lot of interesting stuff in here that could have been explored had it gone to a series. Yeah. I love it. I thought it was brilliant. I, I, I didn't have those problems with it that I did when I read it as a kid, obviously. But now as an adult, I'm reading this going, this is incredibly dubious. <laughs> anyway, Michael's pick 
was an inspired choice. It was. I have to it say. It was totally rad, and we're pretty stoked to do it. We are, actually. Very excited to do this. You, you did say old school, so... Yes. To- totally cool. rad. <laughs> and tubular to the max. <laughs> so gag me with a spoon, daddy-o. Ew. <laughs> anyway, Michael's pick is Lone Wolf and Cub. Awesome choice, yes, young sir. Uh, Lone Wolf and Cub began life in the faraway eastern lands of Japan in 1970 and was written by Kazuo Koki with art by Goseki Kojima. Set in mid-eastern Japan sometime during the early Togugawa era, approximately 1603 to 1868, also called the Edo period, the period named for the 15 generations of Togawa shogun military overlords who ruled the nation, maintaining a relatively static society for over 250 years. This period of military rule was characterised by its relatively peaceful order overall, clear division of the social hierarchy, extravagance by the privileged classes, isolation from the West, and a lot of convoluted treachery, as well as many important cultural and intellectual developments. Lone Wolf and Cub follows the adventures of Ogami Itu and his three-year-old son Diogoro. The story opens with Ogami, the shogun executioner, disgraced by false accusations from the Yogyu clan. As a disgraced samurai, a ronin, he is forced to follow the path of the assassin to make money and hires out his services with a sign, sword for hire, son for hire. In addition to these side missions, the stories also had a continuing narrative in which Ogami and Diogoru sought revenge on the Yagyu clan that framed them. In many ways, it's the A-Team, 12 years before the A-Team. It is, however, an epic 28-volume manga, spanning a total of 8,700 pages, and is totally committed to depicting the historical accuracy of a truly fascinating time in Japanese history, with the series never shying away from the bloody violence and sexuality of the period. To do the series proper justice would take an entire series of podcasts, We discovered Lone Wolf and Cub via the Dark Horse reprints in 2000, and it's one of those rare series that managed to engage the interests of myself, Michael, and Angela. Lone Wolf and Cub's importance and relevance cannot be overstated. It was phenomenally popular in its home country, spinning off into a number of movies, most famously the Baby Cart series, and a TV show. Frank Miller owes his career to it, and the characters have made appearances in other shows and comics, including a particular humorous cameo in Samurai Jack. (laughs) Volume 1 of the manga The Assassin's Road has a new cover by the aforementioned Frank Miller of Ogami, pushing Diogoro in his cart, his face and sword, a Dokanuki battle sword, something that will become very important as the series progresses, bloodied, and trail of the dead bodies in their wake. It's one of Miller's best covers, even though there's very little to it. Yeah. I always thought Diogoro was adorable. But he's a little patch of hair. Yeah, he's got like a little patch of hair at the front and the rest of his head's bald. And I always thought he was really cute. Mm. Such a really cute kid. Who did the covers later on after Miller stopped? Uh, Bill Sinkovich did a couple yeah. and other people that I don't remember. Because he only did the covers for the first nine or ten, didn't he? I thought and it was I think, the first three. Aren't they repurposed from the previous company's reprinting of Lone Wolf and Cup? Didn't I'm first sure. comics first publish this? I'm not sure. And I think Dark Horse just nicked the covers. Yeah, I know Dark Horse only did the smaller ones before that, the actual comic size, weren't they? Yeah, I think first comics printed them as standard American sized comics. Yeah. And Dark Horse reprinted them as proper manga sized comics. Although they're, they're, they're smaller than manga sized, actually. Are they? Yeah. Well, they're not as well 
it's not in Japanese format. You don't have to read it backwards and back to front. Yeah. They have repurposed it for a Western audience. I've got to say, I prefer this. Yeah. One of the things that puts me off manga is having to read it backwards and back to front. I prefer it like that. Do you? Yeah. I say, I, I don't. I don't, I don't mind reading them and I don't mind the translations and some of it's really, really good, but that is really just too wacky to me I to read a book backwards. It works with the art better. Do you know how the comics are laid out so that you follow the dialogue yeah. along with the art? I think that works a lot better in its... Well, they'll be, they'll be drawn for that way. Yeah. See, this... There's I, nothing that really hinders it, but it right. works better in its right order, I think. I, I prefer them changing it to our way of reading. Fair enough. It is is one of those. Is this so it's me, easier. Yeah. Is this me being a filthy foreigner? <laughs> yeah. Or is it just? I don't mind other culture stuff. I, yeah. quite, I love this. Yeah. This is fantastic. No, this is a good, really good mixture of the two, really. But I really do struggle to read it when it's backwards and back to front. Yeah. I really, I just can't wrap my head around it because I've got forty years of being conditioned to read this way. I can do both now. It's well, so you've you're eighteen. You've grown up with manga. Yeah. So you're used to it. So it's a different thing. The first volume, The Assassin's Road, features a glossary of Japanese terms for us clueless Westerners, <laughs> an excellent essay on the influences and legacy of the series, and a biography of its creators. We will be looking at the first story, a 30-page opus entitled, appropriately enough, Sword for Hire, Son for Hire. I should have read the synopsis with, like, how to say names. <laughs> Take it away, Michael. Sugito Kenmotsu. The Kumikaro, elder of the Mibuham, is guarded by five masters of the Nenryu Sword School, the Guardian Eight of Mibu. Many men in the Han who have tried to assassinate Sugito have all been stopped by the Guardian Eight, and none have been left alive. The feudal lord is ailing. Sugito schemes to force him to retire, and to place the young master Takemaru, a scion of another branch of the clan, in the castle in his place. Takemaru is but a child. Sugito will control him, and the Han like a puppet. A man is offered 500 Ryo to use his sword to rid the lord of the jackals at his side. The man agrees to enter the Shima. That man is Ogami Ito, the Shogun's executioner. Ogami is on his way to complete the job in the Heishi Byway through the Niko Mountains when the Guardians receive word of Ogami. Assassin dispatched from Edo, name unknown, age unknown, sword school, weapons all unknown have confirmed that he travels with small child. From this he is often called Lone Wolf and Cub. He is said to be highly dangerous. Take immediate precautions. Reads the scroll delivered by a hawk to the Guardians. The Guardians say that if they can capture him as Sugito commands and force him to name his employer, then they will have evidence against the Edo Elder. They can say Edo sent him to assassinate Lord Takemaru and Mibu's 30,000 Koku will be in the hands of the Lord Elder. On his journey, Ogami walks into the waiting guardians who stop him, one of which asks to look at his child, Diagoro, as it reminds him of his own son. Ogami claims that Diagoro doesn't like him. After all, children are pure of heart and can pick up on men who smell of murder. At this, the guardians remove their hats and unsheath their swords. As they rush towards him, Ogami slices their swords in two and mounts the child's cart, riding it down the side of the mountain. The Guardians release their hawk, and Ogami notices this as the Nenryu School Hawkwing eye attack and blindfolds Diagoro. Soon they will enter the Shima. As they ride down the mountainside, Ogami looks up to the hawk and his eyes fill with dirt, blinding him and allowing him to be captured by the waiting Guardians. 
Ogami drops his sword and is taken to Taritanba no Kama, the castle town of the 30,000 Koku Mibuham. At the town, the Lord is told of the, the Edo assassin's arrival. The Lord and the Guardians question the tide of Ogami about who hired him. Ogami states that Daigoro needs to pay and refuses to answer any questions until he has been freed so that he can allow his child to pay. After Daigoro begins to weigh loudly, the Lord allows Ogami's short freedom. Once Daigoro has relieved himself, Ogami asks the Guardians how they knew he was the assassin. He is told that they have spies throughout Edo and that one of them sent a warning by a runner. Ogami quotes the runner's scroll, assassin dispatched from Edo, and so on, to the amazement of the men who ask him how he knew it. His response is that he wrote it after killing the spy in Edo. Quickly, he grabs a cart's handle and releases a blade from the tip before throwing it through the lord's throat. He grabs another, releases the blade, and turns to the Guardian 8. With Daigoro on his back, Ogami kills all of them. Guards from the town rush to him, but are stopped by his lordship, Homoedi Tanomo, Ido Karu, and Ogami's hero. Ogami walks away from the Shima as Homoedi Tanomo and the Guardians discuss his ability to reveal their clan's feud. Tanomo tells them to leave him and to fear the wrath of Lone Wolf and Cub. I love that is the Diogaru's pram or car is full of weapons. It's full of weapons. (laughs) It's brilliant. Through as you go throughout the series. The handle is two big swords, isn't it? Yeah. That he pulls out and pulls together. And as you go through through it, like Michael says, there are weapons hidden all over the cart. Mm. And you're like, where was Elf and Safety when he puts <laughs> his baby in that? Quite frankly. It, it, if you put the little bit of padding in, like a pillow. <laughs> it doesn't look like he has anything in, does it? <laughs> it must be the most uncomfortable thing. It must thing. be the most uncomfortable thing for Podiagori to travel in. Yeah. This wooden shack <laughs> with wooden wheels rattling along good though yeah exceptionally good uh, the opening scenes of this set up the story that we don't actually realise until the end mm. wonderful piece of structure the opening pages of Garmi being hired for the job and then the next scene is deep into the story with Ogami being harassed and arrested for being a wanted criminal that we will ultimately learn that this was all a setup by Ogami is a masterful twist in the tale. Again, the influence of this can be seen in many later works, the central protagonist setting up a situation where the adversary think they are in control, only to have the rug pulled from under them. But it's just done so well. On the face of it, this is perhaps a simple story. Yeah. But the way it's structured, that you go through this entire story thinking that Ogami's been caught Mm. and that they've got the better of him. And the bit at the end that you covered in your synopsis where they start reading it and then Ogami just starts joining in with them. Yeah. Reading the note from memory. And the butler, how do you know what this says? Mm. And he says, because I wrote it. Hack! And off comes one of the heads! There's a line of dialogue before that when he's going down the mountainside and he says soon he'll be at the Shima. That's where you can... Is that where you can infer that this yeah. is all part of his plan? Well, that's where you get that he plans to be captured. Yeah, it's his... Uh, he wants to be captured. I mean, certainly, when they do the, the what's it, the Neoruru school hotwing eye attack, Yeah, you do get the impression he did have enough time, though, to blindfold himself as well. Yeah. So the fact that he doesn't kind of leaves it open to interpretation 
that he's let this happen to himself yeah. to lull them into a false sense of security. Because he does recognise the attack as well. Yeah, before it happens. Yeah. So he knows it's coming. And obviously he protects Diogoru. Yeah. So there's another thing. There's loads of real Japanese terms in the dialogue. Which, you know, they could be confusing to a Western audience. Yeah. But even without the glossary at the back, which does come in useful sometimes, mm. I did refer to that a couple of times when we read the series, you can pretty much figure it out within the context of the dialogue. I Where mean, obviously... name. Yeah, Ryu yeah. was obviously currency. Yeah. Whatever it was. I mean, I looked in the back and saw that it means gold coins. But you can figure out from the context of what they're saying that obviously it's money of some kind. Yeah. You don't need to know whether it's gold coins or dollars or cents or whatever pennies, pounds, whatever it is, it's yeah. currency. That's all you need to know. You can figure out all of that as you go along. It does have the knock-on effect that have you read it, the situations and terminology just become commonplace. Yeah. And you do start to get used to them, don't you, as you're reading along. It might take a little while just because yeah. of how painstakingly accurate it is. Yeah, and the fact that Japanese culture is, for most of us, is a completely alien culture. Yeah. So it does take a little bit of of getting into but once you do it just becomes commonplace it also has the knock on effect that without realising it western thickos like me are being exposed to another language and another culture and actually starting to learn something about them Mm. through the medium of comics yeah excellent well you can't learn it through Godzilla films you learn it through comics well you know you do pick some stuff up from the Godzilla films yeah I don't know what <laughs> fire a nuke at Godzilla and it won't kill him that's what I learned from the Godzilla film oxygen destroyer <laughs> yeah, yeah. get him into the ocean Ogami's use of Diogoru in his plans and he does this quite a lot yeah, he? he does yeah. he does use Diogoro an awful lot in his ruses isn't the one story where he just abandons him yeah. and he gets picked up by the enemy yeah. and, then he, and yeah. it's all part of his plan <laughs> yeah. to do what he's doing and he can argue it's a little bit mercenary but he is a mercenary yeah and they make very clear in one of the stories Diogoro's got to earn his keep he yeah. may only be three and you moan about doing the washing up. <laughs> At least I don't sacrifice you to a gang of cutthroats and mercenaries just so I can em- embark upon some kind of elaborate plan. Yeah, but at least he always is safe. He, he does like abandon him like this, but... He's always got his eye on him. Yeah. He's always well within reach, yeah. even though he's seemingly left him at the side of a road. For people to just find. Yeah. Because he does that quite a bit. And there are times when he lures people in yeah. with Diogaro. He uses him as bait in a lot of the stories. It's it's also one of the best kind of cinematic comics. Yeah. You could translate this literally to the silver screen and lose nothing. And they have done yeah, the Baby Cart series is very faithful yeah. to these. You've never watched that. No. We had them all on video. I did like the Baby Cart series. You don't get the impression that that's what it was written for, though. Yeah. You get the impression it was written as a comic. But it's it's like Preacher. You could give it to a talented director and say, film this. Yeah. And it would work. I mean, this would probably cost a lot more, because you've got all the period dress and authenticity yeah. that would probably cost a lot of money especially if you're going to do it as a western movie there's some excellent action beats especially the scene on the cart with the aforementioned Hawkeye attack where Ogami manipulates the assassins so he has them exactly where he wants them but there's the brilliant bit where he leaps on the cart 
and rides it like a surfboard. Yeah. He does some good stuff with that the, car. The action scenes in this were what made it popular, really. Were they? It, it, well, it will become a, a large part of it. Well, won't chapters just be a fight scene? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and the fight scenes... I always thought the fight scenes were exceptionally well choreographed. Yeah, they were really brutal as well. Oh, yeah. They were well, just heads and limbs flying everywhere. That's what I said in the opening. They never skimped on the brutality of the era. And the art was great in it as well. It could switch between really... Yeah, detailed and refined to really cartoon well, at the same time. And the the way the switching in this one was the the dialogue scenes were all heavily rendered and they were shaded and there was lots of different shading and heavily inked. Yeah, and then when you get to the fast paced action scenes, it's a lot looser. Which and is a lot more what you think of as manga and anime, lots yeah. of lines and stuff. Which is really weird when you get a kind of simple, yeah. A kind of simpler, cartoony style, and there's just limbs flying everywhere. Yeah, he, he does loosen his art style up, doesn't he, mm. for the action scenes. And even if you flick through the rest of the stories in this volume, it's the same all the way through it. The minute the action starts, his art's a lot scratchier and looser. Yeah. So it's a deliberate effect that he's going for. And it, he pulls it off magnificently, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely brilliant. It's an impressive opening chapter, for much as for what it isn't as much as what it is you throw the reader straight into the action this is a standard episode of Lone Wolf and Cub isn't it yeah it's not what would nowadays be called a mythology or arc episode there is nothing in this first story that tells us how Ogami came to be in this situation why he's a Ronin and what indeed the central story arc of the story is going to be rather this is just an introduction to the characters and the situation those characters will find themselves in on a monthly basis. The art by Goseki Kojima, who sadly passed away in 2000, is magnificent, not just in this chapter, but throughout the series. His attention to detail, his fluid, well-paced action scenes, his tender moments, the facial expressions, the uber-violence are all shown as they would be. No skimping off falsehoods to the violence. Most impressive, he moves from a detailed, heavily inked line to a sketchy, almost hastily produced line for the action, techniques that beautifully highlight the frenetic pace of the action sequences and the sword-wielding mayhem. Contextually, this series has been incredibly influential. As with a lot of modern works, there are sequences of silence where the art carries the story, and the real-life, non-sensationalist approach to the sword fighting has heavily influenced Tarantino's approach to violence, but without the fascistic tendencies sometimes present in Tarantino and his less talented imitators' works. Despite this, though, the pacing is glorious, and whilst the story is quite slight, it is an excellent introduction to the series. Eschewing the traditional origin sequence in favour of a more action-orientated beginning that teases the reader with questions whilst giving them a taste of the series that will follow. Utterly magnificent stuff. One of the rare series that is well worth all the accolades that it has had piled upon it. Whilst I was never a particularly big manga fan per se, this series was just so good it transcends its genre, just becoming a truly wonderful and gripping read. Well worth checking out if you've never read Lone Wolf and Cub. Especially with all of its spin-offs now. Is there? There's been a few sequels and there's been the... How can you sequelise this? It has an ending. I, it was sequeled by the guy who originally wrote it. And the same artist. I don't know, it hasn't, but it has 
it, I think it has another so, sequel and another one planned. So does the sequel follow Ogato Diogoro? Uh, yeah. Uh, I suppose that could work, but that wouldn't be a sequel per se, because the series ends, the series has a definitive ending. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose you could do Diogoro stories. I think that is what they've done. But it wouldn't be a, a sequel in the true sense of the word. Yeah. Right, okay, well, I may be more interested in checking that. Why did you pick Lone Wolf and Cub? Because I kept mine. <laughs> I'm sorry, lovely listener. I've just opened down page 177, and it's a shot of Diego taking a piss. Yeah, <laughs> that's just made me laugh. <laughs> anyway, what made you pick this? Because I was chomping at the bit for you to do X Force One. Uh, honestly, I only picked it because I couldn't think of anything else to do. Yeah, because you didn't want to do the predictable Grant Morrison thing. Yeah. And you didn't want to do a Vertigo Hellblazer thing. You wanted to do something that people perhaps wouldn't guess that you would do. I want to zig where people think I'll zag. Yeah, no, this was a good choice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it made me want to sit and read them all again. Yeah, I've never actually read them all. I don't think I've ever made it past volume four, four or five. No, it's really good. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics. I'm just going to have to have a look at the book because I don't know. Oh, yeah, we're doing our two-part... Give the devil his due. Yes. Season, aren't we? I said season. Mm. Can you call a two-part episode a season? Definitely. Too short a season. Yeah. I think. Uh, our two-part look at Daredevil's 50th birthday. Is that what you started reading the Miller stuff for? No, I've started reading the Miller stuff just because I've been listening to J. David Wheater's Dave's Daredevil podcast. Fair enough. And I'm listening to it going, this sounds good. I'll start reading this. And it's just coincided with us doing Daredevil. Yeah. So it's, that's just dumb happenstance. But now I just feel the need to read it all. Fair enough. Do we know what issues we're doing for it? Yes, I know exactly what issues I'm doing for it. Are we doing any Miller ones? Yes, we're doing uh, three Miller ones. Which ones? Do you want me to shoot my load, lovely listener? All right. <laughs> for Daredevil, give the devil his due season. I've already spoken to David, so we're not treading on his Daredevil podcast toes. Okay. We're doing issue 41, issue 47, issue 146, and issue 163. And part two will be issues 181, 191, 200, and 223. I wish I knew what they were. So if you... Well, one's the death of Mike Murdoch. <laughs> oh, no. One's brother take my hand, an absolute blinder. Okay. One, the, <laughs> I get it. You get it. One's the uh, famous fight with Bullseye in the TV studio. Right. Uh, one's the fight with the Hulk. Okay. By Frank Miller. Then the death of Electra. Right. His last issue as writer and artist. Is that the one where he... roulette? Yeah, that's yeah. my favourite one. Well, I picked that one. Issue two hundred. Yep. And issue two two three, the Secret Wars two crossover. Okay. Ah, uh, you'll like that. One. Will I really? <laughs> Actually, you will. Okay. It's, it's, well, I'm not going to say, but yeah, I think you'll like that. All right, so I hope you'll enjoy this for those. Hope you enjoyed this. I know I did. Yeah, I did, Sometimes yeah. it's quite good to do something like this, isn't it? Mm. Forget we've done this season and that season and six episodes of that and put a lot of heart and soul into a particular episode like the Spider-Man UK one. Sometimes it's good to just say, let's pick a comic yeah. and talk about a comic. I like, I like writing the synopsis as well. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. You did a good job, huh? Oh, thank you very much. Anyway, uh, thank you for joining us. We hope you will join us again next week. When we start giving the devil his due. Yeah, otherwise we have no listeners. No, that would, well, we only have 15. That's <laughs> established. Yeah. Go down to 10 next week. <laughs> no, no, we normally go down to 10 when we cover Vertigo. So when we do Rock World <laughs> in a couple of weeks, yeah. 10 listeners if we're lucky. Fair enough. <laughs> oh, should we tell them, coming up, we've got Flash Rebirth as well. Yeah. We're going to cover Flash Rebirth because we're in a bit of a Flash phase mm. with, uh, with the new TV show coming up. All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us.
Bye bye. Goodbye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Yeah.